We've been in the message series, 40 Days of Transformation, and uh, today we'll be looking at managing guilt in our life. To begin with, I'd like to talk about the ministry of Jesus and why he came. Jesus really was hidden away in Nazareth until about the age of 30. At his baptism in the River Jordan began his ministry. In Luke chapter 4, his very first sermon in the synagogue, Jesus gives his mission statement. If anyone's ever worked on mission statements in companies or organizations, you know mission statements are succinct, they're focused, and they're meant to say, this is what I'm all about, this is what we're all about. And Jesus said that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, healing to the broken heart, sight to the blind, release to those in prison, and announce a year of favor from the Lord. That was Jesus' mission statement, and so he did do all that. So when he stands before the woman today who's caught in adultery, it was his ministry to come and set free the captives. It was his ministry to come and set those in prison to life's challenges and life's pains and life's wounds. So we begin, go to the gospel, John chapter 8, and the elders of Israel catch this woman in adultery. So it's an obvious wrongdoing on her part. Moses' law said that the people who were caught in adultery were to be stoned to death. That meant the woman and the man, too. The problem was the man didn't show up in this story because the elders weren't interested in the man. They were interested in using the woman to be able to entrap Jesus. Here's the point. If they could get Jesus to deny the law, they'd be able to bring a charge against him, and that would set him up for trial. So the woman is caught in adultery, wrongdoing, obviously, There's no man in the picture who also should be blamed as part of this. The elders and the Pharisees and so on are a picture of condemnation of her and using her. She also is a picture of what sin does to the soul as well. We see her being condemned, her being beaten down, her being guilty, and feeling shamed. This is what sin does to us because we weren't wired for sin. God didn't make us to sin. If you were to be cutting up some fruit, for example, and you were to cut your hand, you have a wound to your hand. Well, every time we sin, it's a wound to our soul. It's like cutting our soul. That's why we need grace to heal the soul, like you need some kind of anesthesia or anesthetic to be able to heal the hand. This woman's a picture of that. The Pharisees, the scribes, are a picture of of resistance and denial of Jesus. They're a picture of... So what does Jesus do? He bends down in the ground, and with his finger, he begins to write. We're not exactly sure what he wrote. It could have been simply an act of indifference on his part towards the elders and the Pharisees. But it also can mean something else that does have some precedent in the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 17, where it says that the Lord will write on the ground... Those, the names of those that resist him, the fountain of living water. My guess is that he may have been actually referring to that, because the Pharisees and scribes would have known exactly what he was doing. They knew the inside, the Old Testament, inside out. So when he was writing the ground, he could have been writing perhaps their names, or at least the act of writing the ground was enough to symbolize to them that they were resisting him, the fountain of living water. The finger also represents, in the Old Testament, the power of God. God's power, God's authority. So here is Jesus tracing on the ground with his finger. The same finger 
that created the worlds, the same finger that healed the sick, opened the eyes of the blind, made the lame walk, the crippled leave for joy, the dead raised, the same finger that would trace on the wood of the cross his blood is the finger that he's tracing in the sand for this woman because when he rises up, he's declaring her not guilty. He says to her, he says, where are your condemners? Now, Jesus kind of entrapped the Pharisees and the scribes. He turned the tables on them because Moses' law said that whoever the witnesses were that saw these two people in adultery, you guys be the first to pick up the stones and start throwing away. Then the rest could jump in after them. So Jesus turned around to the elders and said, which of you who without sin God pick up the stone and start throwing? Of course, they all knew they were with sin. They, everybody knew they were with sin because they were in the temple almost every day offering sacrifices for their sins. So everybody knew they had sins. So Jesus kind of turned the tables on them. He turned the tables on the accusers of this woman. And then, of course, they go leave one. This to her something very fascinating. He says, go he says, and sin no more. Does that mean that she'll never, never, ever, ever sin again? Like she became an instant saint all of a sudden overnight? No, it's not. First of all, he says, I don't condemn you, which means he forgives you. He forgives her. The word go in John's gospel is the word for being set free. He uses the same language with Lazarus in chapter 11. He calls out Lazarus from the tomb, and Lazarus comes out. He's all bound up with, you know, the burial bands. And Jesus says to those around him, go and set him free. Untie him and set him free. The word go means to go and be free. Jesus doesn't want us just forgiven. He wants us free of the things in our life. This lady was bound by guilt and by shame and by the pattern of living she got herself into. And Jesus not only forgave her, he was freeing her in her life. What do we do with guilt in our life? Guilt is a powerful emotion. Uh, it can paralyze us. It serves a good purpose. It's kind of like a fever in the body. When we have a fever in the body, you recognize something's wrong in my body. I must be suffering from an infection somewhere. You know? And so we, we kind of look beyond the fever to see what's going on in my body. Well, guilt serves that purpose. When we have guilt, it can mean that I've somehow done something that has violated my moral conscience, so I need to pay attention to that. But usually, after we've done that, and we maybe ask for forgiveness and all that, and you know, we still have guilt complexes, this is not healthy or helpful to us at all. Some people take their guilt and they bury it. Um, they bury it in work, so they don't have to pay attention to what's going on inside of them. They get so involved in the work around them. The only problem is at night, we're all, you have to stop working at some point, lay your head on the pillow, and that's when everything comes rushing in. That's why some people get up in the middle of the night and still go back to work. You know, Other people make a geographical move. They want to escape the area where they perhaps they felt some sense of guilt and feel overwhelmed by guilt. So they move. The only problem is they take themselves with them. So, so wherever they move to, they're, they're there too. You know? So they can't get away from their guilt that way. Other people... Blame others. Adam and Eve in the garden blamed each other for their, for their sin, for their guilt. That's how they managed their guilt. Adam blamed Eve, blamed God because, God, you gave me Eve. Eve blamed Adam. She blamed the snake on top of it. So just went around in a vicious circle. 
And then some people compromise. They say, well, I can't live up to those standards. I might as well just change. So they compromise their values, compromise their standards. We do a lot of different things with guilt, but there's only really one way to manage our guilt. It's how God deals with it in our life. He deals with it through the cross of his son. There at the cross, God forgives our sin immediately. Romans 8, chapter, verse 37 says that nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So he forgives immediately our sin. We don't have to wait around to see if he will or if he's in a good mood to do it or not, or if today's a good day to approach him. No, God immediately forgives our sin when we repent and turn to him and ask for forgiveness. He forgives immediately. God also forgives repeatedly in our life. Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 31, Paul says that if God be for you, who can be against you? That he didn't even spare his own son. Will he not give us all the things besides? He says, God forgives repeatedly. Sometimes we think, gosh, you know, I keep coming back to the Lord with the same sin, asking for forgiveness over and over again. It's like the 20th time, 25th time. It's like, will he forgive me on the 30th time? It's like, am I playing with house money or something with this, you know? Will he forgive me the 30th time? The point is, God forgives repeatedly to the heart that repents and turns to him. And then also, God forgives completely from the cross. First letter, John chapter 1 Verse 9 says, if to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God forgives completely. He cleanses us. He purifies our hearts. One of the great values of the sacrament of reconciliation in the church is that it's a fountain, I call it a fountain of mercy that is always turned on to God's people, to all of us in the church, because it flows from the cross of Christ. But the sacrament isn't just simply about forgiveness. It's about the grace to heal the wounds of our soul that comes from sin. It's also the grace that can empower us to be set free from the patterns of living in our life that keep us from knowing the fullness of joy of the Lord's presence. Holman Hunt painted a picture, 19th century, of Jesus called the light of the world. It got absolutely poor reviews from so many people. So in 1854, he wrote the Times to explain what he had done with this painting. He wanted to give an explanation to the Times. Picture was a picture of Jesus as the light of the world, holding a lantern in his hand, standing at this door. And the door represents the person's, a person's heart or life. In front of the door is this overgrown ivy and weeds and all that in front of the door. The per- this symbol of a person who's never invited Christ into their life at all. Jesus stands at the door and he's knocking. But if you look at the outside of the door, there's no door handle. People said to Holman, you made a mistake in the painting. There's no door handle so that someone can open a door from the outside and go in. And he said, no. He says, that's not a mistake He said, the door handle is on the inside. He says, in other words, we have to open the door to let Jesus into our lives. We have the freedom to choose. And if we do so, he promises, I will come in and have fellowship with you. When we turn away from our sins 
and we open the door of our heart to Christ, the light of the world. He scatters our darkness. He frees us from shame and guilt. He forgives us of our sins. He comes to have fellowship with our life, a fellowship that recreates the desires of our hearts and begins to set our life free. The thing, Jesus, the finger that Jesus used to write in the ground today is the finger that created the world, that healed the sick. It's the finger that traced on the cross his blood, which he pronounced the woman and us not guilty. So let's pray. So, Father, we thank you today for your son, Jesus, the light of the world, as he pierced the darkness of this woman's life and set her free from shame, from guilt, by forgiving her, but also, Lord, by setting her free from the patterns of disorder in her life. We ask you, Lord, to write and trace upon our hearts this morning the same words you spoke to her, not guilty. We also ask, Lord, that you would stir in our hearts a desire to be free patterns of sin in us, that you alone have the power to free us. As we turn to you in repentance, we turn to you opening the door of our hearts to you. May you come in in a fresh new way this day. May we hear clearly and in a new way those words pronounced over us, not guilty. We pray this through Christ our Lord.